the House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. It's Capital Ideas for Sunday, February 12th, 2023. Welcome. It's the podcast where members of the majority Democrats in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. The last time Representative Roger Goodman visited Capital Ideas was way back in 2016, and the idea he talked about then was bipartisanship. We'll touch on that more than once today, but the overarching theme is community safety. Roger happens to be the chair of the House Community Safety, Justice, and Reentry Committee, so that makes sense. We'll also talk about justice and reentry. That's not reentry as in a space capsule headed back to Earth. It's the reentry into society that almost everyone who is currently incarcerated will eventually experience. Roger lives in Kirkland and represents the people of Washington's 45th Legislative District. We talked on Friday, February 10th, 2023, and you can hear it now. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Roger Goodman from the 45th Legislative District. That's over on the east side of Lake Washington. It's been seven years since the last time you were on Capital Ideas. I believe we sat down somewhere in an office tower in Seattle to record that one. Welcome back. It's been too long. It has been too long. It's good to be back with you. When we talked back in 2016, you were the chair of the House Public Safety Committee. Uh, that's a committee that doesn't really exist anymore because of some name changes. You're now the chair of the Community Safety, Justice, and Reentry Committee. The significance of the name change is probably important, and maybe that's where we should start, is how has that evolved from public safety to what is really kind of a mouthful now? It is. That's a lot of words, but they all mean something. Community safety is uh, a phrase that we want to be using more than public safety. There is a distinction. Public safety, uh, to conceive of it, people, first of all, they think of police. They think of stopping crime. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, kind of a two-dimensional way of looking at things. Community safety is much more of a, it's a deeper concept where people will be safe in their community, not just because police are patrolling the area and we're trying to stop crime, but we're making investments in those communities that are protective factors that will reduce the likelihood of disorder and crime. Uh, so the community safety part is the basis of it, but the title of the committee continues. It's community safety, justice, and reentry. Following through, if there is a breach of community safety, then the justice system needs to handle it. And boy, we have a lot of different conceptions of what justice means. And yet uh, it really is sort of the justice system and the committee I chair has jurisdiction over all of those matters. Uh, the working of cases through uh, the justice system. And we hope that justice is done. Again, it's a a very delicate balance, really, between holding those accountable who harm others, who who violate our social norms, but also protecting the rights of those very same people. Because if you violate the rights of one person, you're violating the rights of all of us. Uh, So this notion of justice really is this balance uh, between a system of criminal accountability, which allows our civil society to thrive, 
but also making sure that the rights of everyone, including the accused, are adequately protected. The last part of the name of the committee, uh, so it's Community Safety, Justice, and Reentry. Reentry is sort of the hot new topic. We know now the criminological research is so clear that if you just lock somebody up and they don't give them anything uh, except a bus ticket, uh, you know, let them out the door at one in the morning, they're going to come back. Uh, they don't have what it need, what they need to s- successfully reintegrate into the community. So reentry is all about making those necessary investments for how they will function uh, once they are released. Uh, so we really need to increase our state investments in mentoring, treatment, job training, family reunification. There's so many things that we want to help people who have run afoul of the law and have been incarcerated uh, get back into their community and function normally again. So that's reentry, which is really a hot topic enough so that we actually put it in the name of the committee because it really is a priority for us. A lot of this sounds like the kind of things that would take place before reentry to prepare a person for when you open the door. Are there things that are taking place also after a person has left confinement so that while they're really re-entering society, have there been bills or there things in the works that will go a distance towards maybe helping that person not come back? Yeah, it's not just after they're released, but what are we doing with them when they are confined? Uh, in Europe, uh, once a person enters prison, the first moment they enter is when the planning process begins for their release. In our country and in our state, people languish in prison for years. And maybe at the very end of their sentence, they're eligible for some programming. But at that point, uh, they've, they really have lost a lot of their, the potential to function normally in the community again. So it's not just what, they, what we need to give them when they get out, but uh, to really beef up the programming and services and supports while they're confined to help prepare them. Uh, for the release. And yes, at the point of release, we're now changing the, we're conceiving of their time in the community under supervision differently. It's not so much surveillance and reconfining them if they happen to miss a meeting or uh, they test positive uh, on a drug test, but to coach them, to mentor them, to support them. This is what the research shows, is that if you assess uh, what a person needs and also assess how they will respond to the treatment, then it's much more successful. Again, rather than sort of watching them and not empowering them, we actually have to empower them to be at the center of their own lives and find a path that's going to be more successful. So both in the institution and then out in the community, we're taking a completely new look at how we help people who have run afoul of the law come back to the community and not go back to prison again. The last time we talked, we talked about bipartisanship. And that makes me think of that topic again. What kind of reception are these philosophies getting on the other side of the aisle? And also, not just here in the legislature, but out in the community. What about people who basically feel like, hey, these people committed a crime, lock them up, make their lives miserable, and keep them in there as long as you can? Yes. And there's certainly a feeling of uh, the need for retribution. I won't say vengeance uh, so much, but those crimes where someone is killed or grievously injured and there's a real victim, you know, there's physical harm done to someone. There is definitely a sense that there has to be, uh, you have to pay your dues and you need your liberty restricted. And for a long period of time, if there's a very serious offense, 
There is research showing that if you lock someone up for a really long time, they're much less likely to succeed once they are released. So there's this tension between what the research shows is effective in helping people go along a straighter path uh, and this, um, I guess, somewhat emotionally based sense of uh, the need for accountability and for justice, justice at any cost, uh, however long they need to be locked up. You can imagine that the family member of a victim uh, who has been killed, they feel like they are serving a life sentence. And so they want the person who did the bad act to serve a life sentence as well. And it doesn't always work out that way. And, and it's actually quite rare that someone is incarcerated for life and not released. More than 90% of the people who go to prison get out. And that, for me, is the imperative. If 90% of the people who go to prison are going to get out, we want to make sure that they're going to function better when they get out. The deprivation of their liberty is the punishment. If we treat them poorly while they're in prison, it's just going to make it worse. And the research is very clear on that as well. I've heard all sorts of complaints about, oh, they get to watch TV, or it's probably carpeted in there, and oh, they get all this delicious food, which I have to say is not true. On a daily basis, I hear from prisoners and I hear from their families about conditions uh, in there. And frankly, there are too many people in prison, too many people who are sick and elderly, who couldn't possibly commit a crime if they wanted to. And so it's hard to manage this population, which is large, and also in aging institutions. The buildings uh, are deteriorating, and the health care needs, it's, a, it's sort of a beleaguered agency, the Department of Corrections, uh, what they have to deal with. I'm engaged in an effort now, just now, starting a long-term effort on sentencing reform. Let's take a look at whether our sentencing system is as effective as we want it to be. And there's two categories of criminal offenses. The first we've just been talking about now, serious offenses. These are the, the headline grabbers uh, where there's, you know, there's dead bodies and injured people. Those are actually quite rare. Most criminal offenses are minor involve damage to property or theft of property, and most of it involves a behavioral health disorder, a drug addiction or mental illness or poverty, which leads people to commit criminal offenses, but they don't lead a criminal lifestyle. They're not intentionally violating our societal norms. They're just trying to cope with a difficult life. And yes, they've committed a criminal offense, and so there has to be some accountability there. But locking them in a cage where they are not a threat to the community is counterproductive. I believe we're reaching some consensus now on this huge volume of cases at the lower end, these property crimes uh, and uh, offenses where no one was physically harmed, that the response shouldn't be incarceration uh, by and large, that the response should be a community-based response where we will provide the services and treatment again so that the person can function normally in the community. And, and people from all uh, places on the political spectrum actually agree with this. They realize, given the criminological research over the last three decades, that this community-based response is much more effective and cost-effective in improving public safety, or I should say community safety, and helping these individuals uh, you know, get back on a straight path. So the sentencing reform efforts uh, will be focused uh, on, on those huge volume of cases so that we don't waste our money. And actually, we can take the wasted resources, the, the, the money we're wasting on needless incarceration now, and reinvest it in those community supports. Uh, we call it justice reinvestment. It's a concept that's sort of spreading around the country right now. So I'm, I'm very excited about this. This segues perfectly into the fact that one of your key bills this year involves sentencing and, and really uh, kind of looking at the way it's done in particular cases, which involve enhancements, which you can explain in a moment. As a former director of the Sentencing Guidelines Commission, this really does dovetail with something that you've had a lot of experience in. 
how is this bill going and, and really what would this bill accomplish? The sentencing process is very complex. And actually, that's one of my efforts is to reduce complexity because the calculation of, of the sentences is, uh, they get it wrong about 10% of the time. So people are locked up for too long or not long enough or they're supervised too long or not long enough. So we're trying to simplify the sentencing system, uh, but also provide more discretion. That's the key. It's, it's not one size fits all. It's one size fits one. Each case is unique. Each individual and, and the circumstance of each case uh, is unique. And so we want to give judges on a case-by-case basis the ability to provide the sentence that they think is more appropriate. And the law right now does not provide judges that discretion. So one of my pieces of legislation would give judges the discretion to order a sentence enhancement for using a firearm uh, or a deadly weapon. But if there is more than one deadly weapon or more than one firearm or more than one victim, the law actually does not give judges the discretion to order this sentencing enhancement, which depending on the offense is 18 extra months in prison or five extra years in prison. Uh, They have to be stacked on top of each other and so if there's five victims, then that's 25 years, not just five years. And does this mean if somebody holds up a 7-Eleven and there's five people in that store, that's five victims? Exactly. So there, it could be that the conduct resulted in no one getting harmed. And yes, there was a robbery. And yes, a firearm was used, but no one was harmed. And so, yeah, they deserve to have their liberty taken away for the armed robbery. And they deserve to have their liberty taken away even further because they used a weapon. But to have five years turn into 25 extra years, that's just one example. I mean, there's so many other cases. Uh, it's 70, 80 years in prison you know, for, some, for like a 19-year-old kid who had no idea what was going on. Just, he was just the driver, for instance. And the people who he was driving, they were the ones committing the crime, but he was the one who got, you know, who got the time. Uh, so there are a number of cases where the prison sentences are clearly excessive and not in the interest of justice. And it's the prosecutors who have brought this to me. They want to provide a better balance and a sense of tailored justice so that it's uh, according to the the individual and the circumstances of the case. So my bill would allow judges to unstack, to to order just one five-year enhancement for using a firearm, uh, however many uh, victims there were, but also give the judge the discretion to order multiple enhancements if it's a particularly egregious case. Uh, but, but the judges need that discretion, and the prosecutors agree with me. So that, I hope that bill goes through this year. Are there situations in which a prosecutor might back away from bringing a case because they know that it would be a miscarriage of justice, even though the person is guilty of a crime mm-hmm. and should be sentenced? Yes. To, yeah. the, the, the prosecutor won't, won't back away from the case, but the prosecutor will find another charge. So, for instance, we have a three strikes law in our state where if you commit three crimes, certain types of crimes, you go to prison for life, uh, no release. By the way, the research has shown that that law has had a counterproductive effect, that these so-called strike crimes have gone up and the non-strike crimes have gone down. So incarcerating these people seems to have had the opposite effect uh, that was an intent. It certainly hasn't deterred anybody else. However, let's say someone already has two strikes and they commit another offense that could be a third strike and the prosecutor just doesn't believe that sending them to prison for life. So let's say they put their finger in their pocket and they tried to rob a latte stand or something, you know, because they, they're addicted and they need money for their habit. D- should you go to prison for life when you didn't even have a weapon, but you, you know, put someone in fear and stole something? 
prosecutors say no. And so they will amend the charge. They will down charge uh, so that the offense is not a strike offense. And so they don't go to prison for life. So that's an example. Yeah, the prosecutors have to sort of play with the system. But what the public sees is something quite distorted. I want to have much more of a transparent justice system in general so that the public has more confidence in the system. And certain communities, marginalized communities in particular, do not have trust uh, in the system. We could talk about structural racism for a long time, but the ju- if there is structural racism anywhere in, in our society, it is in the justice system. And so these reforms, the reform of sentencing, uh, reform of policing, uh, reform of, of prosecution, uh, is actually uh, very favorable for racial equity in our society. So that's, that's one of our driving motivations. Another one of your most significant pieces of legislation this year has to do with something that is in the news here in Washington State every day because of the controversy surrounding it, which is vehicular pursuit. Your bill seems to strike a little bit of a middle ground between, well, let's roll it back and, and just have police chases occur no matter what, and the people on the other side who are extremely opposed to that idea you want to study this and come up with something that's actually based on data. Yes, there's been all sorts of facts thrown around, and I'm not sure if they're true. I don't want to legislate when we don't even know what the facts are. Some are saying that vehicle pursuits, uh, police vehicle, you know, police chases are inherently dangerous, uh, which I agree, they are inherently dangerous, and that since we have put very severe restrictions on the ability of police to pursue in vehicles, uh, there has been a significant decline in deaths. Uh, arguably a 66, 67% decline in people getting killed, bystanders, half of them innocent bystanders, uh, when a police uh, uh, chase uh, ensues. Uh, so that's pretty compelling that the policy we put in place that severely restricts vehicle pursuits by police has saved lives. On the other hand, we've heard from, and I have heard from mayors, police chiefs, business owners, uh, citizens, uh, to do something about this because... Uh, the word has gotten out, uh, and those who do have criminal intent uh, are committing offenses and just driving away, knowing that the police can't necessarily chase them. So there's this sense of disorder, lawlessness, sort of a brazen lawlessness, which I do have to say is uh, nationwide. Uh, there's a, a assertion that our restricting police vehicle pursuits has caused this increase in crime, and that is not true. Uh, the increases in crime nationwide and actually worse in the rural areas uh, and actually worse in those states that did not enact police reforms, which I think is interesting. So there's a nationwide sort of disruption. This is a, a post-pandemic phenomenon. Our economy, our politics, our, our whole society, our, our culture has been disrupted by the pandemic. And this is part of it, uh, the, increase, the spike in crime, which is starting to come down again. Violent offenses this year are starting to come down. So we're kind of getting over the pandemic disruption. However, the issue of uh, police vehicle pursuits is very much unresolved. uh, And I'm trying to move two bills through, one that will provide police a little bit more flexibility to uh, chase a a vehicle where they only have what we call reasonable suspicion. They don't actually know that the person driving the car committed the offense, but they have a pretty good idea. Right now, they have to have probable cause to chase somebody, and that's very rare. So if there's a dead body lying there, and someone has gotten into a car and they're driving away, there's people standing there saying to the police, he did it, go chase him. That's actually not enough for probable cause, but it is reasonable suspicion. I want the police to be able to get in their car and chase that individual because that is a real threat uh, to, to community safety. 
we also have a balancing test we've already built into the law where if the chase, the vehicle chase itself is more dangerous than the risk of not apprehending the individual, you have to call the chase off uh, because we don't want to be needlessly endangering the public. But I don't want chases willy-nilly. I don't want police to be chasing stolen cars or chasing shoplifters or chasing, again, property offenses where no one was physically harmed. And we can get them later. We have tools to get them uh, at another time. Uh, but if there's a, a, a serious offense, a violent offense where someone has been injured or killed, uh, I do want to give police the ability uh, to pursue them if the pursuit itself uh, is safe. So that's the bill that I'm going to be trying to push through the House, and I don't know whether we have the votes, because there's a tremendous uh, hesitation, particularly, again, in marginalized communities. Their, their interaction with the police over, well, generations has been a negative experience uh, for them. And, and they want to see improved police community relations, and they believe this is part of it. I, I actually am a little nervous about the legislature getting it wrong again. We really tightened up vehicle pursuits perhaps too much, and this time we're going to try it again. But what if we don't get it right again? Uh, and so uh, the other bill that I'm sponsoring sets up a working group at the Criminal Justice Training Commission with the experts, the traffic safety experts and police and community members and others to devise what would be an optimal vehicle pursuit policy and then come back to the legislature next year and have us enact that into law rather than our pretending like we're the experts and micromanaging the police and perhaps incorrectly. So it's a sort of a two-track strategy and uh, let's see what happens. Let's stick with driving for a minute here and talk about impaired driving. This is another area in which you have, over the years, sponsored legislation that has had a goal of making our streets safer. What is your impaired driving bill this year? What does it accomplish, and how does it go about it? Ever since the beginning of my tenure in the legislature, I, I knew the answer to the question, but I asked the question anyway, who's getting harmed out there? Who, who, is, who is being harmed in our communities? And the answer is uh, people on the roadways from impaired driving and people in the homes from domestic violence and from sexual assault. We don't like to talk about sexual assault or domestic violence, but it happens in every community. And so I've been legislating very actively both to reduce the harm from impaired driving and sexual assault and domestic violence ever since I've arrived in the legislature. I have a couple of bills related to domestic violence and sexual assault and also a couple of bills related to impaired driving this year. Uh, the impaired driving bill this year is more of a kind of a grab bag of fixes. There's not really a, a headline item. Uh, I established many years ago the Ignition Interlock Program, where if you are arrested or convicted, your, your license is suspended. But what we found is like four out of five people whose licenses are suspended, they drive anyway. They have to go to work, or school, or perhaps they're just flouting the law. So I created a new Ignition Interlock driver's license, where they get a driver's license, but they have to put the Ignition Interlock, the breathalyzer in the car. You have to breathe into this thing. And if it's alcohol, the car doesn't start. So it's actually the car holding the driver accountable and it has saved thousands of lives. However, it's a pretty uh, complicated program. This ignition interlock driver's license program, the Washington state patrol, the department of licensing, the local courts, the ignition interlock manufacturers, the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, everybody has a role in this whole system. And we encounter glitches, uh, you know, where, where it doesn't work as smoothly as it should. So the impaired driving bill that I've introduced is really, again, it's not headline grabbing, but it will improve our system so that those who drive impaired are held accountable, but those who need to drive and live their lives will be able to continue to drive with this special license and so forth. There is one issue, it's called the employer exception. 
if you have a job which involves driving vehicles a lot, like uh, valet parking at a restaurant or something like that, we'll give you a break. It doesn't have to be an ignition interlock device in every one of the cars that you drive because you're getting in and out of various cars you know, during the course of your work. But people who are self-employed have said, oh, well, this is my car and it's my job and it's my company, and so I don't need the ignition interlock. And they've had an a impaired driving conviction, a DUI conviction, and they're required to put this, uh, uh, you know, this breathalyzer in the car, but they don't put it in their car because they say, oh, well, I'm an employer, uh, and they're actually employing themselves. So there's been some abuse of this, so we're going to tighten it up that if you are a self-employed person driving a car, you need the ignition interlock device uh, in that car, unless your car is used exclusively for work-related purposes, so not Sunday cruising around or whatever. So these are sort of the little adjustments that we make over the course of time. The other bill, however, is really important. Impaired driving is about two things. It's about drinking and driving, and that's the deadly combination. And so we have a program called Deferred Prosecution, where if you are charged with a DUI, if you are assessed as having an alcohol problem or a drug problem, you can elect to go into a very intensive treatment program. And the prosecution for the impaired driving charge will be suspended. Uh, And if you succeed in treatment, then you don't get the conviction. But the problem is that this deferred prosecution, this treatment alternative, is only available once in your lifetime. So what the defense attorneys are doing is saying, okay, why don't we wait until your next DUI, until we give you the treatment option, which is a really perverse outcome. Uh, And so the legislation that I've introduced um, allows for two in a lifetime. So if you have an impaired driving charge, you can go and get the intensive treatment option and then you won't, you will avoid the conviction. But on your next one, we'll let you do it again because the disease of addiction is a progression and it can continue, and you might very well likely get another impaired driving charge. But uh, before we sort of lock you up without any therapeutic care, let's give you this treatment option again. If you do it the third time, uh, at that point, there needs to be some criminal accountability. And the one thing that impaired drivers want to avoid is jail. Uh, so I'm actually, actually thinking of another option beyond this, is if you have this third uh, impaired driving charge that we would require treatment, judgment would still be entered. You're going to have a conviction, but they don't want to go to jail. And so the idea is, okay, if you don't want to go to jail, you have to go to treatment and we'll count day for day credit or something like that. Uh, But what I want to focus on is the therapeutic intervention because that's what works. There's so many criminal offenses where behavioral health disorders, mental health, substance use disorders are at the root. And this is, again, most criminal offenses involve some behavioral health disorder uh, at the root. So That's what I want to focus on, and that's what the research shows works, is give people help and then get them on the right path. We've been talking quite a while here, Roger, and we're over our limit. I know that you've got other appointments to go to. What's your last shot here? How would you like to close out this episode Mm -hmm. of Capital Ideas? So I've been at this for a while. This is my 17th year in the legislature. I'm uh, sort of an elder statesman. I find that all the uh, new members are coming to me for advice. A lot of members are confiding in me with their secrets. But I'm giving them all the same advice, and that is don't just introduce a bill because you think it's a good idea. Take the time. Gather everybody around the table, however long it takes. Be inclusive about this process. Make sure that people are treating one another respectfully. And be deliberate really flesh out all of the issues 
Because if you introduce a bill without having done that work with all the interested parties, the bill's not going to pass. And this has been my experience. The other thing is, if, uh, if you pardon me for the expression, but the ass you kick today, you're going to have to kiss tomorrow. And so you better all <laughs> find something to agree on and work together. And, and so I go over to the other side of the aisle all the time. And if I have major legislation, I find a, a person from the other party to be my co-sponsor. And during the week after the work day, I go out with my Republican friends and we'll drink whiskey and smoke cigars and talk about sports, talk about our kids. We don't talk about uh, policy. But the next day when we're back in the House chamber, I go up to them and I say, hey, that was fun last night. And we're being human beings. We're, we're being, you know, f- friends with one another. And that really sort of lubricates the process of policymaking. They might be a no. They might vote no in the end. But it's not sort of a hair on fire, hell no. It's, it's a respectful no. Because we respect one another and we, and we acknowledge one another as human beings. So that really is my advice. Uh, and it, just in general, you know, just be nice to people and you'll be successful. Uh, for me, I, I'm wired to be nice. To, being mean just takes too much energy. And so uh, I find that that's been successful uh, uh, in getting, getting done what I want to get done in my life. This gives me a perfect opportunity to say that the last time we talked, seven years ago, you mentioned the three Roger Goodman rules. And I would like to finish up this podcast with a reprise of the Goodman rules. Well, I have a bunch of rules, of course. Uh, my, my, Let's just have three. Okay. I was going to say my, my rules in life are have fun and be nice to people. I mean, it's taken me a while to figure it out, but have fun and be nice to people. They fit together. But in politics, the three rules, which again, I find work very well. Number one, thank people. If anything's coming out of my mouth, it's thank you. And it's, it's honest, it's legitimate, it's genuine. I really am thanking people for their leadership or for their help or their inspiration. So the number one rule is thank people. The second rule is give everybody else the credit, even if you've done all the work. And I, you can accomplish rule one and rule two, too. Like thank, I want to thank so-and-so. I want to thank my colleague for your leadership on whatever it happens to be. By thanking others and bringing others into the process, everybody kind of knows what's going on uh, and you get the recognition. But if you're sort of blowing your horn and, uh, you know, taking up all the air in the room, it's not appreciated. And the third rule, oddly enough, is don't be partisan. I know that we are divided by party. Uh, We are terribly polarized now uh, in this country. And I believe that partisanship certainly impedes governance uh, and service to the people. Uh, and so partisanship to me uh, really has uh, gotten in the way of a lot that we want to accomplish. So don't be partisan. Give everybody else the credit and say thank you all the time. We've been speaking with Representative Roger Goodman of the 45th Legislative District. One of the missions of Capital Ideas is to give people a little insight into who the people are that are working for them here in Olympia. And I think today has been a really good chance, Roger, for people to get to know you a little bit better. I'm glad we did this. Let's not wait seven years before we do it again. Right. Thank you very much. My mind is always open and my door is always open. So I look forward to hearing from people. Thank you. That's Capital Ideas for today. And there are lots of ideas in there. If you found it worth your while, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on any of the major podcast aggregators or by visiting the House Democratic Caucus webpage at housedemocrats.wa.gov and clicking on the media button at the top of the page. This is your state government. What goes on here matters. We designed Capital Ideas to help you know more about it and the people whose job it is to represent you. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. See you next time.